Our reading today, I'm sorry it was such a long one, but that was actually the shortened version because it's this amazing list of the heroes of faith through history. Um, I had loads of heroes as a child. I loved reading and I got totally obsessed with lots of different people and I wanted to meet them, I wanted to ask them questions, I wanted to find out everything I could about them. Here are a few. Um, Firstly, Lucy from Narnia, I loved her. I loved that she was joyous and innocent and adventurous. Next, the whole of the, all of the children really, in the famous five. I wonder if anyone else listed them. Um, They were brave and they were adventurous and they battled injustice, usually in the case of smugglers, and they had a great time. Mother Teresa, I remember the assembly at primary school where I was taught about Mother Teresa and I couldn't believe the story of generosity and the story of um, a totally different way of living from what I knew. And then as a teenager, I read about Corrie Ten Boom and she, her story is amazing. I read all of her books. Um, she lived during the time of the Second World War and she helped hide and protect Jews at the time. She ended up being sent to a concentration camp and survived it. And I loved her stories. And even when she went into old age, she was still writing. And I love finding out about her life. Next came Maya Angelou. I mean, these are just a few. But Maya Angelou and her stories of incredible trauma, but a great sense of humor and bravery and courage throughout it all. Then there was Jackie Pullinger, who terrified me, but also excited me. The idea that you could give up everything and do something radically different on the other side of the world for people that you wanted to help. And more recently, one of the people I've been following is a man called Mac Ferrari, and he started a movement called Bike Storms um, with a hashtag, Knives Down Bikes Up. And um, he brings together young people from across London and actually from across the country to ride together, and instead of focusing on the differences in postcodes, they focus on enjoying cycling together. That's a few of my heroes. We all need them, don't we? We all need people we can imagine we might become, people we connect with in some way and who give us hope, people who give us the courage that we might be able to be or do something great ourselves. Last week, Danielle reminded us of some of the forgotten women of the Bible and the ways in which women and others have felt excluded, marginalized, unheard by a version of Christianity that's lifted up the powerful and silenced those on the edges. But when we look and see them, the presence of women throughout the Bible actually reminds us that we are all made equally in the image of God and we are all included and we're all in. Saying that, the list of heroes that we heard in today's reading, while they're inspiring, it's not the full list. One of the people listed in that reading that we heard is a man called Barak, and he's actually a sort of a a B-list person in the story we're going to hear about today. And the A-lister is Deborah and possibly her um, companion, Jael but we don't hear about them in the story. So we're gonna find out a little bit more about them now. They're told, the story's told in the book of Judges and it's typically an unpopular book. So much so that in the Anglican three-year lectionary, it's only included once in the whole three years and a very, very short section. And it's because probably it's a really violent book. There are gory accounts of war, plunder, child sacrifice and rape throughout the whole thing. 
It's typically not taught in Sunday schools, although next week in Kids Church we will be looking at the story of Deborah. But it is relevant. I'm sure we can connect with some of the themes that we learn about, tension between rival groups, power-hungry political leaders, abuse of children and women, excessive violence, male political leaders who treat women badly, excessive individualism and moral confusion. At the time of the book of Judges, the Israelites had been led out of Egypt by Moses. They'd arrived in the promised land Canaan, but when they got there, they realized it was already occupied. Joshua led them to fight against and conquer many of the Canaanite cities. And after he died, Israel didn't have a leader or a king. It's likely that they were living on the outskirts of more desirable areas, controlled by Canaanite city-states. The book of Judges recounts the relationship between the Israelites and the Canaanites as they lived alongside each other, different people with different gods, but on the same land and needing to find a way to make it work. Throughout the book, the Israelites go through this cycle of forgetting God, doing wrong, coming under attack from their enemies, then crying out to God and God delivering them. And part of this process, part of this cycle, was God providing the Israelites with judges to provide leadership for his people. Judges were likely local tribal heroes whose stories were told, retold, and eventually written down. They were chosen by God. They would lead battles. They would make decisions about cases that people couldn't agree on. But they didn't just judge. The 12, they established, just, established justice. And of the 12, Deborah, the only woman, was also called a prophet. She responded to a call from God to lead the Israelite nation. And people believed that she heard what God said. They'd come to her and ask to settle their legal cases. Deborah sent for Barak one day. Barak was a military leader. And she had a message for him from the Lord. She told him to take an army to fight Sisera, who was a leader of the opposing side, and the Canaanites. And she told him that the Lord would help him to defeat them. Interestingly, he was up for it, but he said, I'm not going unless you come as well. She said, okay, I'll come, but the Lord is going to, if I come, the Lord is going to let a woman defeat Sisera, the leader of the opposing side, and no one will honor you for winning the battle. The woman will get the glory and not you. Do you still want that? He agreed to the terms and they went together. They gathered an army and approached. Sisera found out, gathered his army. Deborah instructed Barak at the right moment, it's time to attack. The Lord is going to help you defeat him. And the battle began. The entire enemy army was wiped out. Sisera, the leader of the opposing side, tried to escape. His, his army was wiped out, but he tried to escape. And he ran into a nearby camp, which were at peace with his army. Jael, a woman in that camp, who was married to a man that Sisera was an ally of, invited him in to her tent. Really unusual behavior in the day. But he came in. He lay down. He had some milk. He went to sleep. Before he went to sleep, he asked her to guard the door and to make sure that nobody comes in and to lie for him if they did come and ask if he was there to say no. She didn't do that. Instead, she got a hammer, a nail, and killed him by her banging it through his head. 
in the next chapter, there's a victory song. Barak, Deborah, and Jael's achievements are celebrated. Deborah's praised for taking command of a situation that was full of conflict and challenge and danger, and she brings about peace. In fact, after that battle, there were 40 years of peace under her leadership. She's described as protecting Israel as a mother protects her children. She certainly shouldn't have been missed out of that list of the heroes of the faith. However, before we look at Deborah further, we do have to acknowledge the horrible violence in the text. When I told my mum about the story I was speaking on today, her initial response was, well, I suppose one possible theme could be a variety of ways of killing people. Um, she is right, you can't read Judges without being thrust into awful stories of genocide and abuse and oppression. And the troubling thing, the most troubling thing for me, is that on first reading, it appears that when God's chosen people reached the promised land, God's preferred way for them to live was proactively wiping out whole cities so that they could have power over the area. As Rachel Held Evans puts it, while women are raped killed and divided as plunder, God stands by, mute as clay. I think it's worth us acknowledging that however we ended up with biblical texts that tell God's role in this way, that he's the commander-in-chief of a scary army who believe they have a divine power telling them to obliterate and conquer, that isn't the version of God that we know or believe in. In fact, many Old Testament writers now suggest that the telling of these horrid tales was probably a deliberate choice in order to show how things shouldn't be, not how God wanted it to be. The words that we read that God supposedly said instructing terrible killing and sacrifice were in fact written by people, people who were caught up in a violent time and who believed in a tribal God, their own God, who didn't love others. Putting it another way, Peter N says this, the Bible looks the way it does because God lets his children tell the story. So, back to Deborah. Given the patriarchal nature of the time, it's interesting and surprising that there are so many women talked about in the book of Judges. As I said earlier, of the 12 judges, she's the only one that was a woman. And there isn't that much information about how she got to that position. We know she was called by God. We know she was called a fiery woman and a mother of Israel, that others believed in her call and they trusted her judgments, that she was decisive and bold. She supported, she delegated to others, and that her actions led to 40 years of peace for Israel. We know that she was aware of the typical power dynamic between men and women. Early in the story, she reminded, she warned Barak, that if he came to battle with her, he wouldn't be honoured, if she came to battle with him, sorry, he wouldn't be honoured for his victory. And in her victory song, she refers to the usual practices after winning in a battle, which would include women being captured and brought back as a prize for the men. They're the things we know, but we don't know what she overcame to lead in that position. We don't know what opposition she faced when she stepped into a role that men had always previously filled or what her own doubts may have been about herself, or who refused to follow her, or trust her, or respect her leadership, given that she was a woman. We also don't know which other women could have done that role, but didn't manage to step up 
or what stopped them. Whatever her backstory, I'm glad she bucked the trend, that when she knew what God wanted her to do, she stepped up and she did it. And yet, we're not there yet. It's International Women's Day today and we still need it because we know there's still disparity between men and women, particularly in leadership. Women lead only 14 of 195 of our countries in the world. Only 34% of UK MPs are women. Women are paid 23% less globally. This year, only 13% of UK films were directed by women. Only 7%, this is American stat, only 7% of Fortune 500 companies are run by women. McKinsey and the organisation Lean In have completed a five-year study looking at women in the workplace. And what they found is that at entry level, in entry-level jobs, the um, balance is fairly even between men and women. But as you move up the hierarchy towards leadership, you can see that the balance really shifts towards men. So there are significantly higher numbers of men in leadership roles higher up in organisations than there are women. For every 100 men promoted and hired to manager, only 72 women are promoted and hired. And yet we know that true diversity benefits everybody and that companies with more women in leadership roles perform better. So what gets in the way? Why does this keep happening? All employers say, oh, we're obviously in a really different time to Deborah, and employers say that they want fair and equitable workplaces. And yet in many... Not all, but in many, women are still underrepresented in leadership. I wonder if you've heard or seen this riddle before. A father and son have a car accident, and both are badly hurt. They are both taken to separate hospitals. When the boy is taken in for an operation, the surgeon says, I cannot do the surgery because this is my son. How is this possible? Most people get stuck on that answer for a while, and... I'm sad to admit that I did when I first saw it. The answer, of course, is that the surgeon is the mother. But so many of us get stuck because we just assume that a surgeon must be a man. We don't even think we think like that, but then we do. And it's called an unconscious bias. They influence our perceptions and beliefs and decisions, and they're kind of scary because we don't know that they're happening. The McKinsey report, the same one I referenced earlier, explains that one of the biggest driving forces in gender imbalance is unconscious bias. In their study, they found that 71% of survey respondents felt that unconscious bias from management was a major factor in the imbalance. And bias testings found that unconscious bias has a huge impact in the workplace. You're more likely to get a response to sending in your CV if you have a white-sounding name. It doesn't just affect gender. Men are more likely to be associated with science and maths, while women with languages and the arts. Implicit biases relating to performance in schools, in particular subjects according to gender, predict academic achievement in primary age children. What we think they'll be good at because of their gender, they are better at. Universities are less likely to respond to inquiries about research opportunity 
if the email appears to be from a woman. The exact same email. And what about on a personal level? How do our biases affect our interactions and conversations and the people that we work and live alongside? I wonder if you've ever heard these words used to describe a leader. Bossy. Too much. Challenging. Harsh. A climber. Or controlling. I know I have. And they're often words that we use to describe female leaders. I've heard most of them used to describe me, and they may have been true, but the same characteristics often get described with different words when we're talking about male leaders. Instead, strong. Instead of too much, enthusiastic. Instead of challenging, clever. Instead of harsh, direct. Instead of a climber, ambitious. And instead of controlling, decisive. Our words are powerful. They can affirm and encourage and reassure a leader in a position that they deserve. Or they can question and undermine a person's strength or integrity or right to be where they are. Another thing that the McKinsey report found um, is that women are more likely to experience something they call microaggressions. These are everyday slights that range from having your judgment challenged to being overlooked or being mistaken for someone at a more junior level. Women who experience microaggressions are three times more likely to regularly think about leaving their job than women who haven't experienced this form of discrimination. Compared to other race, races and ethnicities, black women are the most likely to have their judgment questioned in their area of expertise and be asked to prove their competence. Lesbian women, bisexual women, and women with disabilities are far more likely than other women to hear demeaning remarks about themselves or others like them and to feel like they cannot talk about their personal lives at work. Here's a couple of quotes from the report. How you're treated in the room, that makes the biggest difference. Those microaggressions of not being asked a question or having people talk over you or when no one solicits your opinion, they add up. Here's another one. I'm often the only woman in the room with a bunch of guys. It takes a while to make it known that I'm not the note taker. I'm not the party planner and I'm not their mother. I'm just a worker like they are. We all have these biases in us, so we're probably all part of the problem. But I wonder if we notice it. I wonder if we notice it in ourselves or in others. And I wonder how often we see it, challenge it, name it, stop it, apologize for it. And I also wonder how Deborah and other female leaders overcame it. When I read the story of Deborah, I love hearing about her boldness, her quick response to Barak that puts him back in his place, her decisive action, and her apparent confidence in what she's been called to do. I love this statue of her with a sword. No fear here. But given what we've heard about the odds stacked against women even today, we could probably forgive half of the human race if they ended up going with the flow and playing it safe or remaining quiet and reserved. And yet, I think we've got a God who calls us to more.
The reality is that many of us, of any gender, end up feeling trapped sometimes or stuck in our own questioning of ourselves, our fears about what might go wrong or others' expectations of us. But while we get stuck, I do think that deep down most of us know what we could be. Deep down, I do think we have a dream of what we could do, the type of person we could be, or the thing we know we want to say, but we don't. The thing is, it can be scary to consider what we could do, what we could be, what we could say. Sometimes it's easier to stay within our limitations, naming others as the reason that we don't step out, or speak up, or challenge, or choose differently, or move on to something else. Podrick puts it this way. We need to make sense of ourselves. And in order to make sense of ourselves, we need to reckon with the powerful possibility that ourselves are of value. And not just for a distant, redeemed potential that exists like a taunting promise of what might but probably never will be. But for now, for what is, for what is in the ordinary sacrament of today. I wonder what would be next for you if you weren't afraid of failure. What would you do if you didn't need others' approval? What would change if you were brave enough to change it? How would you be different if you didn't believe the words that others had said about you? Of course, these things are far easier to talk about than to do. But I do think our heroes help us believe it's possible. I've got one more hero to share with you. And she's someone that I think didn't get stuck in questioning herself or her fears about what might go wrong or others' expectations of her. She knew what she wanted and she didn't let anything get in her way. This is my grandma, Sheila Jeanette. And she grew up in Liverpool. Her mum was a secretary and her dad was a greengrocer, but somewhere along the line, she knew she wanted to study science and she knew she wanted to become a doctor. She got evacuated during the Second World War. She had a really difficult time where she was questioned and assumed that she was naughty and told off for coming home late when actually she'd been at school doing extra work because she was so fixed on what she wanted to do. When it got to time for A-levels, she wanted to study science. She knew she was going to be a medic. And she was told that she couldn't because she was a girl. And so she went to an all-boys school so that she could do her science courses. She went on to become a medic. She had four children. She worked as a doctor throughout her whole career and became a leader in her field. The story she most likes to tell is one of her early jobs, where she worked with Dr. Ludwig Gutmann in Stoke Mandeville. 
He was a Jewish doctor who fled Germany just before the, world, the start of World War II and specialised in spinal injuries. She was there when they started the Stoke Mandeville Games for disabled people, later to become known as the Paralympics. I'm sure she still did question herself at times, and she probably did have fears about what might go wrong. And she definitely had to manage others' expectations of her. Her husband was also a doctor, and that was really unusual. But I love that she did it anyway, that she worked in what she loved, and she went on to lead in a time and an area where very few women did it. At Kids Church, when we're trying to work out what's really going on in a story, we sometimes ask each other, is that what we know our God to be like? And if the answer's no, then we look for another solution. The God who I know is a God of freedom and strength. A God who doesn't want to silence or suppress or keep things clean and neat by keeping certain people quiet. A God who would rather that we step out and try the thing we believe in, even when we'll probably get some of it wrong make some mistakes, get embarrassed along the way. A God who's with us as we take risks, get vulnerable as we try something new, and a God who cheers us on always. I'll leave you with Will Gaffney's words. The author of the epistle to Hebrews has a gendered recollection of history without the her story of Deborah and Jael. You can do what God called you to do, and people may forget that it was you God chose to use. Someone may rewrite your story in their own image, but God will not forget. God will be with you when others forget you. So, may God, the mother and father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Hagar, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Bilhar, and Zilpah, who took the tangled thread of their lives and wove a tapestry of redemption in the blood of Jesus, continue to weave the strands of your life in the divine design. Amen.